So this morning we'll be uh, jumping into something from uh, Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. In fact, and as you are uh, turning there, a few weeks ago, uh, when we took the, uh, the youth students up to winter camp, we had them uh, text or call their, their parents when we arrived uh, up there, uh, just to let them know that we had arrived safely. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure most of you that were, uh, received those calls or texts were very thankful uh, to know uh, that your students had arrived, arrived uh, there uh, safely. Uh, but uh, and most of you remember the the days before cell phones, uh, the days before uh, immediate communication with anybody uh, that you wanted, virtually at any point in time. Uh, and I think we we sometimes take that for granted now, just that ability to immediately say, "Hey, yes, I made it there safely," uh, and and alleviate uh, the concerns of of parents, but. Uh, if we use our imaginations just for a moment and think backwards in time, not too long ago, before cell phones, uh, even before uh, the telephone, even before the telegraph. In fact, for most of human history, uh, the, uh, the ability to, to communicate with people was very, very limited. Okay? And uh, to, to communicate with somebody else over a great distance, what did you have to do? had to actually sit down uh, and write them a letter. Uh, and then, depending upon how uh, great the distance was between uh, the sender and the recipient, it may take uh, weeks or even months for that letter to arrive. Okay? Uh, now, we get impatient if someone is slow to text back. Right? Like, man, it's taking them five minutes. I see the little bubbles. Like, why aren't they responding? Or I don't see the bubbles. Why aren't they responding uh, immediately? Now, can you imagine with that level of impatience how it would feel uh, to have to wait weeks or months for a response? Uh, or say you, you were getting a, a normal response about every two weeks. You'd exchange letters uh, with a distant family member. And then uh, suddenly you hadn't heard from them for six weeks. What might you think? Something happened. Well, and and you, your mind begins to go to these places. Uh, and with this slow pace of communication, it would just be absolutely agonizing in light of our concern for the well-being of our loved ones. Right? Uh, one historian writes this about letter writing in the 1700s. He says, People in the late 18th century were helpless in matters of health. They lived in constant dread of sudden death from disease, plague, epidemic, pneumonia, or accident. So their letters always begin and usually end with assurances of the good health of the letter writer and a query about the health of the recipient. That's basically how all letters began and how they ended. You know, it's, it's normal for us to have this uh, concern for the well-being uh, of loved ones. So it preoccupies us. We're, a genuine concern for their physical well-being is a, a normal and natural thing. But what about uh, our genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others? Uh, does, does that ever come across our minds? Does that weigh upon our, our hearts? Uh, and... Uh, we, we think about uh, concern for the spiritual well-being of others that, in one sense, all ministry is acting upon that concern for others, especially their spiritual concern. 
Uh, and uh, if we are to be faithful followers of Christ, if we are going to follow uh, our Lord and all that he has called us to be as ministers, as disciple makers, as ambassadors, uh, we need to have a, a genuine spiritual concern for those around us. Not just a, a physical concern for their well-being, uh, but even more important than that is where are they and how are they doing spiritually? Uh, and uh, and herein lies the difficulty. When when we have a concern for others, especially a spiritual concern, uh, uh, and we go to express that to them, those conversations are always difficult, right? Uh, to go and explain to somebody, whether it's a, a spouse or a child or a co-worker, uh, you're going to go and have a spiritual conversation. You have a concern for them, and you're going to go talk with them about it. It's always difficult because in the balance you're thinking, well, uh, they might respond well to it. Uh, and when someone responds well to one of those conversations, there's almost nothing better than that, right? Uh, when, when you go, you, you speak your heart, they, they hear what you have to say, and they respond uh, well to your concern. Nothing better. But then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, if you go and you pour out your heart and you express your concern for them, and, and they rebuff you, they, they reject you, Almost nothing more deflating than that. Almost nothing more discouraging. And and having a great spiritual concern for others is you know, it can be both uplifting and a tremendous weight all at the same time. And it's no wonder then that the, the Apostle Paul describes his ministry as agonizing. That's the, the word that he uses in uh, several weeks ago back in uh, December. I preached a message from Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, which was uh, Paul's uh, personal mission statement. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we might may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that word struggling is literally where we get our word uh, agony or agonizing. Uh, and uh, those two verses are really a part of a, a larger section where the Apostle Paul is introducing himself to the Colossian church. See, the, Paul had never met uh, that group of believers in Colossae, he'd never been to that town, he'd never spoken with them. And so he's, he's writing to kind of give some of his own credentials. Say, hey, uh, hi, I'm the Apostle Paul, here's, here's what the Lord has commissioned me to do. Uh, and th- this, this larger portion begins uh, in uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 24 through 27. If you look with me at those verses... Paul is again introducing himself uh, to the Colossians. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul introduces himself and says, hey, uh, I have a stewardship. I have this responsibility that was given to me by God uh, to 
to proclaim God's word, to make God's word fully known uh, and to shepherd uh, the saints of God and tell them of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Speaking of our the believers union with Christ. Uh, and then Paul goes into uh, a little bit more detail about his uh, ministry uh, as it relates to those whom he is writing to. Uh, and uh, the verses that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, are going to tell us uh, more of this introduction and Paul's concern for uh, the Colossians. And read with me uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Paul says, For I want you to know... How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so what Paul is is informing the Colossians about is his agonizing concern for their spiritual well-being. Which is again remarkable because he hasn't met them. So how is it that he, having never met them, is in this great agony over their spiritual condition. Well, and as we're going to, to see, uh, and as you probably well already know, is that you and I will experience some of this same type of uh, agony uh, because we have uh, other spiritual concerns. Again, for, uh, for children, for her parents, for uh, friends and, and other family members, co-workers who don't know Christ. We have a concern for them. Weighs upon our heart and our soul. And if we, we love God and if we love our neighbors, and if we seek to, to serve Christ faithfully, then our hearts will at times ache because of this concern for the well-being of others. But what is this? And we could call this gospel ministry, having this concern for others and then acting upon it with a biblical response. What is it about gospel ministry that leads us to having this agonizing concern? Why is it that that discipleship or just relationships in the church or evangelism towards those outside of the church, what, what makes those so difficult? And why they weigh so heavily upon us when we are in the midst of carrying them out. Well, this passage is going to give us a lot of insight into that. This passage answers that question and shows us why ministry and relationships can be such a struggle. And and really, to to sum it up, is uh, those relationships are so difficult because the location of the battlefield uh, and, and what lies on that battlefield. And this morning, as we look at these five verses, we're going to see these three reasons concerning why ministry is agonizing. And all three of these reasons are related to the areas of life that ministry deals with. We're going to see that ministry uh, and just relationships, they deal with real people, first and foremost. So it's going to get messy. Okay? Secondly, they, they deal with matters of the heart. Okay, things that you can't necessarily uh, put your hands on. Things that you can't necessarily say, oh, that's out of place. Let me just pick that up and move it over here. 
They're intangible things, matters of the heart. And then thirdly, they are matters that deal with truth and lies. The truth hangs in the balance and it's easy to be uh, deluded and led astray by the lies that we tell ourselves and the lies that the world tells us. That's what makes ministry and that's what makes relationships so difficult. So let's look at these three three things that make ministry so agonizing. Uh, and the first is going to be found in, in verse 1. In this first point you could call it ministry is agonizing because it deals with real people. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Again, Paul, uh, in writing this, he's communicating what he, he wants the, uh, the Colossians and the Laodiceans, Laodiceans who he, he also tells this letter to be passed on to them. That's why he includes them here. Uh, and Laodicea and Colossae were, were neighboring towns, similar to the way Boise and Nampa are neighboring towns. Say, I want you to know what a great and significant concern I have for you. Again, that, that word struggle... And we saw also in verse 29 is where we get our English word agony or agonize. And this was a spiritual battle that Paul was competing in like an athlete in a contest. That's how this word is usually used. And one translator said that you could put this as, uh, For I want you to know how great is the contest in which I am engaged for you. And more than likely just speaking of the way that he prays uh, for them. Okay, his overall concern drives him to this uh, agonizing prayer on their behalf, lifting them up to the Lord. Elsewhere in uh, Paul's letters, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that wasn't just of some people that Paul ministered to. That was for everybody that Paul ministered to, that it weighed heavily upon him. So he says to the Colossians, for you and the Laodiceans, and all who have not seen me face to face. Because again, Paul hasn't met any of them. And again, his compassion for them is so significant. And uh, what's amazing is again, of just as, as Paul lists off uh, elsewhere in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he lists off all of the, the things that weigh upon him in ministry. Now, all of these struggles that he has... In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses uh, 24 through 29, he says this of his suffering. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Then he says something very profound. He lists off all of those things, which is kind of an overwhelming list, right? Uh, we, we fall far short of what we have gone through on behalf of ministering to others. But then he says this, and apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. It says, who is weak and I am not weak? And who is made to fall and I am not indignant? 
On top of all of those other physical things, what is it that, that hung upon Paul's heart and mind through all of that? His concern for the people and all of the churches that he went and planted and started. And then Paul knows all of the, all of the ugliness and all of the difficulty that the, those churches are facing, and that weighs heavily upon him. And, and this is significant. That he wants them to know that. And he, he wants them to, to know of his concern because sometimes just knowing that someone else is concerned about you is encouraging, right? Because when they're concerned, you know that they care. I remember uh, back in, when I was playing football in high school, uh, in those really tough days of, of summer when everyone's just cranky because it's like 105 degrees uh, and you're tired and exhausted and thirsty and uh, it's, it's towards the end of the day. And I remember one of my receivers complaining to uh, my, uh, my offensive coordinator. Uh, who, he, he was a younger coach and he tended to kind of get in our face uh, a little bit, which you got to have some thick skin. And one of the receivers says, Coach, why are you always on my case? Can you just leave me alone? Like, what is it that makes you continue to, to come after me? Do you not like me or something? And the coach says, no, I, I do like you. And that's why I'm always on your case. Because you need to be most concerned when I stop talking to you. When I stop talking to you, that, that shows you that I don't care about you anymore. I don't want to see you improve. But coach says, as long as I'm, as long as I'm coming after you, as long as I'm, I'm coming and expressing a concern and driving you to get better, you know that I love you and I care for you. I'll always remember that. And when we genuinely care about people, we will be concerned for them. And when we are genuinely concerned for them, what will we also do? We'll let them know. Well, we will express that to them. Because indeed, if we, are, if we are silent in the middle of such a battle, it communicates something else entirely, right? It communicates, well, I don't care if you, if you go off the edge of that cliff. Oh, it, we go and we warn. We go and have those conversations when we are concerned for someone else. And we will agonize over them in prayer. And we will labor uh, to see them grow in Christ. And we will go to battle uh, against the, the thoughts and the ideas that are taking them captive and leading them astray. You know, as parents, you know that. You know those things that you are willing to do to, when you see your children wandering. And it feels like a battle because it is a battle. It only feels that way because it is that way. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that ministry to others is agonizing because we're dealing with real people, with real lives, and we are concerned for them because we care, we love them. And we are called to serve as ambassadors, to, to pray for others, to beg and to implore them to be reconciled to God through Christ. We're called to be watchmen. That's what Ezekiel likens himself to. That he is called to, to be there and to proclaim when there is danger coming. Uh, and if the town watchman is there and sees danger coming and he says nothing, who's going to be responsible? The watchman. But if, the, if that watchman sees the danger coming and announces it to the town and the town does nothing, then who's responsible? The, the town's people. And we are called to be watchmen. We are called to speak into the lives of one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say this, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it is called today. That's a long time, right? As long as there are todays, we are to be doing this. To be watching out for one another. To be exhorting one another. And again, this is agonizing work. This is agonizing ministry because lives hang in the balance. But in the middle of that, we don't only have to agonize. We can still have peace, even though we have a great spiritual concern for others. And how do we get that peace? Where does that come from? Well, number one, understanding and acknowledging and keeping in mind that God is in control. That He is the one who saves and He is the one who sanctifies. And our role in this whole process is to be watchmen. Not to go in and, and shape and mold people into our image, right? That's always the temptation, right? Here's what I want you to look like. Here's what I want you to be like. And you're not quite there, so let me help you get there. I'll just knock this off, chisel that, uh, right? Uh, we, we, we tend to want to, to go in with our tools and mold them and shape them, but really, who is it that's called to do that? The Lord does that through His Word and through His Spirit. We are called to be instruments in His hands, but a different type of instrument. We are those who proclaim, those who announce, those who speak the truth in love. And we go to people in concern. But that is what we are called to do. But it still becomes difficult. Even though we can have peace because we we do what the Lord is calling us to do and then we leave the results to God, we still have a great concern and we still have agony and a struggle within our soul because of others. Because we're dealing with real people. It's the first thing that makes ministry agonizing. The second thing that makes ministry agonizing is because it deals with matters of the heart. This is seen in verses 2 and 3. Paul says why he's concerned there. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in these verses we see what the reason behind Paul's agony of what he wants to see take place in their hearts and in their lives. Uh, And and he expresses this uh, with one big idea. He wants them to be encouraged. And he wants them to have courage for what they are facing. Uh, He wants them to be encouraged in their hearts. And when the, uh, when scripture speaks of the heart, uh, it's not just an injection with a needle. Uh, Let me just inject some courage directly into your, your physical heart. What he's saying there is in your inner person. Uh, the, the heart is where you think, where you feel, where you make your decisions. That's where he wants them to be encouraged. But, but what does that look like to be encouraged? And, uh, there was, uh, once a a Greek regiment which had had lost heart and was utterly uh, dejected. Uh, And the general sent a leader to talk uh, to that unit to such a purpose that courage uh, was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. And that's the idea behind this this Greek word here. That's what what Paul wants to see take place uh, in the the church at Colossae, in the church at Laodicea. He wants to see uh, these uh, Christians who are discouraged, who are down and dejected. Uh, And when we are discouraged, we're not much use for the Lord. 
He says, hey, you need some courage. My, my desire for you is that you would take courage in your hearts. But the, again, how does that expect it to take place? And what does he say there? That your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And that is how the, the courage is supposed to come into them. In love. And this is the, the basis of all uh, Christian unity. And later on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Say, so you, you want encouragement? Work to unite yourselves together in love. The unifying love of the church indeed is the loudest proclamation of the gospel that we can make to a watching world. Francis Schaeffer says this, he says, If an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. And we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And Jesus says in, in John 13, we'll get there in a, uh, a bit, but he says, The world shall know you by your love for one another. And that is what we see Paul was hoping to see in the Colossians. Uh, that that there, there would be a, a unity in love, and that unity in love would encourage them uh, and bring them back to usefulness to God. Now, and the aim of their encouragement, of being knit together in love, was for them to, to enter into two realities. Okay? So, hey, uh, he said, I want you to be encouraged in your hearts. How? By being knit together in love. Uh, and for what end? So you can go in what direction? Well, there's going to be two uh, intos. Number one, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge, secondly, of God's mystery. That, that's, what, that's what Paul wants to see them arrive at. Hey, be united so you can arrive here. This is the destination I want you to come to. And if we look at each of those, number one, to, he wants them to, to attain uh, all the riches of full assurance of understanding. He wants them to, to realize and understand the, the truth that they have. And when they understand the truth, they can have the assurance, right? Uh, no one, no one looks forward to to going to heaven if you don't understand what heaven is like, right? It's like uh, talking with a, a small child about uh, going to Disneyland, and they have no concept of what Disneyland is. I've had friends tell me that they're taking their children to Disneyland, but their their children are so disappointed because they arrived at Disneyland and they expected a park. Right? They expected like green grass and slides. Uh, and uh, they, they get to Disneyland like, what is this? Uh, and again, if they didn't understand what they were going to, so they had no uh, realization of all that it was going to bring them. And so Paul is saying, I, my desire is for you to be united in love and to arrive at an understanding of the, all the riches that you have in Christ. All the, the, and then that will lead to an assurance of your standing. That's what he wants them to arrive at. And then secondly, he wants them to arrive into a knowledge of God's mystery. And then he defines what that mystery is. What's the mystery? It is Christ himself. 
And then there's another little statement describing Christ. And it's really an amazing statement. We could just camp on uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 for, for quite some time. And he makes this statement about Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hey, if you want wisdom and knowledge, where do you look? You look to Jesus. Uh, and all, of, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are revealed in Christ, but then kind of as a paradox, they're also hidden in Christ. Meaning we have to go and, and search the depths uh, of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And when we do that, we begin to see all that he is and all that we have in him. That Jesus is the one to be sought out and excavated and explored and pursued. One pastor says that God's wisdom is a treasure that is hidden in a mystery revealed in Scripture. But now the secret is out, the treasury doors have been thrown open, and the wealth of wisdom and knowledge is available to all who will bow in humble repentance to the person of Jesus Christ. I love that again. There's so much there. Uh, when, when I was growing up uh, in elementary school, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And part of that was because I, I was just fa- absolutely fascinated with dinosaurs. Uh, I had like every book imaginable about dinosaurs and looked at all the fossils. And uh, I loved trying to pronounce the names and all of these things. So that was a big factor of me wanting to be an archaeologist. The other factor was Indiana Jones. He was really, really cool. Uh, and so I already liked dinosaurs and being the archaeologist. And then like, then came Indiana Jones. I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, and so uh, that was what I wanted to be when I, when I grew up in, from elementary school. But as I look back and think about that now, in, in one sense, I have become a different type of archaeologist. I am now one who, who, who digs and, and studies and searches, but not for fossils in the ground, but for all of the treasure to be found in Christ Jesus. For all of, the, all of those treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden and now revealed in the Word of God. And what a blessing that is. And that is something indeed I would... I would challenge all of you to, to take seriously as well. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus? Which means, where, if we're looking for them, where do we go? We go to Him. We go to His Word. That is what Paul wanted to see take place in the Colossians and the Laodiceans. And all who have not seen Him face to face. Which includes... All of us. Unless some of you guys have seen the Apostle Paul face to face, which we may need to talk about some other things at that point. But, but this is what the Apostle Paul wanted. And this is what he was agonizing about for them. And, and you notice, what was he in agony about? All the things that he listed, those were not physical things. They were all spiritual. He's agonizing over their unity over their love for one another, over their understanding of who Jesus is and their proper valuation of who Jesus is and what he has done. That is what he is in agony over. Paul wants the Colossians to understand all that Jesus is. He's saying, Jesus should be the one whom you desire, the one whom you seek out, 
one whom you explore and turn to. And, and the reason he's saying this is because the Colossian church w- was starting to have some issues. And that was the reason their pastor, uh, Epaphras, uh, left Colossae and made a thousand-mile journey to go to Rome and speak to the Apostle Paul. Think about that. What issues would we have to have here for me to travel a thousand miles to get help? Right? But that's what Epaphras did. To say, I, I need to go see Paul because I need his help with, with what's taking place in the church. There was beginning to be disunity. There was beginning to be false teaching creeping into the church. And, and what Paul is saying here is you don't need to look elsewhere. You need to look and pursue and explore the depths of Christ. That is where all wisdom and knowledge are to be found. And the Apostle Paul wanted the Christians in the first century to see and understand that, and may we understand that in our own time. And may we be convinced of that. Because we must know, we must understand who Jesus is and what He has done. And as we, as we walk down that path of who Jesus is and what He has done, we also find out more and more about ourselves. We, we see that the depth of our own sin, the depth of our own rebellion, we begin to see why we have struggles in our relationships. It's amazing as you, as you look to Christ and as you look to His Word and as you, you read His Word, suddenly, oh, my conflicts with my wife begin to make more sense. I was being selfish there and there and there uh, and not understanding and not patience and not gracious. But you begin to see and understand those things as you plumb the depths of Christ in Scripture, and your own heart is revealed. And as I pursue Christ and, and know Him more and more, guess what will also take place in all of my other horizontal relationships? As I see my sin and I see now what the Lord is calling me to do to make it right, I go and do that, and when I act on it, when I go and I ask for forgiveness and I acknowledge my sin, my, my stubbornness, my hard-headedness, and I ask for uh, forgiveness... And what happens as a church body, if that's taking place between all of us, we are knit together in love. And then we are even more fully assured of the wisdom of Christ's way over and above our own way, right? We battle against, so oftentimes, the things that we tell ourselves, and again, all that the world has to say. But first and foremost, we need to see and understand that Christ is our hope. And without Him, we have no hope. So everybody is called to look to Christ in faith, either for the first time, if you've never acknowledged your sin before Him, or for the umpteenth time, acknowledging all that you are as a sinner before Him and all that He is as the Creator and Owner of everyone and everything. If you hunger for peace, if you hunger for comfort, if you are here this morning and you are discouraged, you don't need to turn to Dr. Phil, you don't need to turn to Oprah. You need to turn to Christ. Because in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And pursuing Christ brings encouragement. Again, encouragement comes through knowing Christ first and foremost, but also... I would draw your attention back to the, to the middle of verse 2, right? That their hearts may be encouraged 
being knit together in love. That encouragement comes, secondly, through the body of Christ. Okay? First, through knowing Jesus and valuing Him correctly, but then secondly, being knit together in love. And for some of us who are discouraged today, I would urge you to maybe meditate upon these two questions. And these two questions are not necessarily the only reason for discouragement. There are other occasions, but I would urge you to to think about this. Number one, is it possible that your discouragement is a result of not valuing and treasuring Christ as you should? You may be discouraged because you are valuing other things too much and valuing Christ too little. Secondly, is it possible that your discouragement is a result of not being knit together in love with other believers in the church? Right? That's also a possibility. Because again, if, if that is the means through which encouragement comes to us of being united together, knit together in love... That is where we should pursue encouragement. If you're, you're here and discouraged, here's some answers. Pursue Christ and pursue others who are pursuing Christ also. As I often say, a lone ranger is a... Oh, you guys can do better than that. A lone ranger is a... Yeah. We are not called to live the Christian faith by ourselves. Again, this is why we would encourage all of you to, again, get into small groups, get into our growth groups, get into the Word, get into uh, a place where you can know and be known by others. And of following Jesus together, that you are there knitting your heart together with theirs, uh, and as you all pursue Christ together, that is where encouragement comes from. And then you are all there standing together, united. But this, this little detail that ministry deals with matters of the heart, matters that you cannot touch and put your hands on, but you can see the outward results of, that's what makes ministry so agonizing, so difficult. It deals with real people, matters of the heart, and then thirdly, In verses 4 and 5, ministry is agonizing because it deals with truths and lies. Look at me at those verses. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And Paul is pointing to Jesus and pointing to his supreme and uh, infinite value and worth because, there, again, there, there are people in the Colossian church right now who are seeking to divide, who are seeking to, as Paul says, delude them with plausible arguments. And to delude means to, to deceive or to cheat someone by false reasoning. There's one record of a, a court case in ancient Greece in which uh, this word is used to describe someone who is in court arguing to try and keep things that he stole. Right? And that's, a, that's a trying to delude with plausible arguments. If I should be able to keep these things that I stole from this person, you're like, really? You're arguing that in court? You're not even going like, to acknowledge that you didn't steal them, but you're arguing why you should be able to keep them? That is the idea here. 
Uh, and the implication is that there, again, there were some who were already there attempting to deceive and to persuade the Colossians to pursue and build their lives upon something else rather than the truth of God's word. And again, the remedy to these lies is to understand who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, and then also to pursue unity within the church. And Paul was not there in person, but he says, I'm, I'm with you there in spirit, and that's why I'm going to say these things. And he also, uh, in addition to this warning, he, he applauds them. He says, hey, I, I, I am rejoicing because I'm, what I'm hearing from Epaphras, your pastor, is that what I see is your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And both of those terms, uh, uh, your good order and the firmness of your faith, uh, those, those words both have a military background. Okay? Speaking about uh, good order refers to uh, an orderly arrangement of, uh, that's seen in military formations. And, and the firmness refers to a, a solid front, like a, was a, a Greek military formation known as a, a phalanx, uh, where all of the, the soldiers were united with, a, with shield and spears, and it's like this impenetrable wall. It's kind of put a, a modern uh, version of that. When you see uh, police lining up to take on rioters, what do they do? They have those enormous, like, plastic uh, shields, uh, and they stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and they present this wall, and then what do they begin to do? They begin to move forward as this united front to, to direct where these rioters need to go. And this is the united front that, that the church is called to present as error comes into the church. Okay, if, if we are all together united as a church uh, against error, there's no place for it to, to creep in. We're standing shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield. And there's no place for error to creep in, and there's no place for divisions to creep in. Because we're all standing as a united front. And again, in ministry, we, we deal with truths and with lies. And we are called to be speakers of truth and confronters of lies and falsehood. Which again, if we're going to do that, we have to know what is truth and what is false. And we have to deal with these truths and with these lies, both inside the church and outside of the church. Second Peter 2.1 says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, speaking about Old Testament times, uh, and in, in Deuteronomy 13, God says that he's going to raise up false prophets specifically to see whether or not the people trust in him and they will trust in his word. And Peter continues, but false prophets also arose among the people and in the same way, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And Jude verses three and four says something similar. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So we're gonna, we must be, be ready. We must be a united front against error within the church. And how do, we, how do we determine if there is error being taught by somebody? 
or, or proclaimed by somebody. Well, we, we go to his word. We go to Christ because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We depend upon Christ and we must be on guard also against the theology of the world. Uh, and the theology of the world is really quite simple. Now, the theology of the world is kind of on the one hand of there is no God, so you can be your own God. Uh, whatever seems right to you, you are able to do. Uh, and, and that permeates our thinking more than we realize. Okay? Now, that, that influences us because, again, does a fish know that they're swimming in water? No, that's just what, where they live. Uh, and again, if we are, again, we are products of our culture. And we have to look and see, hey, what are all of these ways that the culture is proclaiming that message to me? Uh, and what are the ways I need to guard against it? And Paul is building up to, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he's getting to this point of warning against all of these other influences. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We have to be on guard against those things. Don't give in to these plausible arguments, but stand firm with Christ. And Paul urges unity and encouragement here before he warns against these plausible and deluding arguments, right? Which seems to also imply that, hey, when there is disunity in the church, what is likely also to creep in? Yeah, false doctrine. Wrong ideas creep in when there is disunity, right? But when we are all united, again, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, that there's no place for it to, to come against us. And so in one sense, we, we must vaccinate ourselves against heresy and false teaching rather than simply waiting to take an antibiotic once we've already been affected by lies and deception. Now, now what's the difference between a vaccine and an antibiotic? Right, you take an antibiotic when you are already sick when you already have an infection you take that but when uh, uh when do you take a vaccination well in advance you see the danger ahead and you say okay that now i need to vaccinate myself i need to know the truth now so that when this error comes i am prepared i say haha that won't work against me that is what we are called to do but again one of the, the things that makes ministry so difficult and have such a heavy toll upon our heart and soul is because we're dealing with truth and with lies. And there are times when those whom we love either buy into lies that they have told themselves or they buy into lies that the world has told them. And then there begins to be carnage. There begins to be chaos. And it weighs heavily upon us to see them suffering the, the consequences and the results of being taken captive by these false and wrong ideas. So it's easy for, for ministry to, to weigh upon us. It's easy for relationships with people that we love, that we have a, a great spiritual concern about, to always weigh heavily upon our hearts. Right? We're, we're always wanting to see them see in Jesus for who He is, to, to value Him correctly. But as we see this morning, there's, what makes ministry and relationships so difficult is it, you know, it deals with real people, dealing with matters of the heart, and dealing with truth and with lies that leave those lives hanging in the balance based upon the decisions that we make and the decisions that other people 
make. And any one of those things would make ministry to others exhausting, right? Makes those relationships just so hard. But all three should drive us to our knees. And that's where we have hope of, yes, ministry weighs upon us. Relationships are, are hard and difficult, but I'm not saying that's why you abandon all relationships and go live as a hermit. No. All of this functions to, to lead us to a greater dependence upon Christ. To, to lift those whom we are concerned about up to the Lord in prayer. And that when relationships get tough, we don't just give in. We don't just say, well, that's the end of that relationship then. It was getting a little bit too hard. And that's, that's always the temptation for us, even as believers. You say, man, there was a little bit of conflict. Uh, and rather than going and pursuing that person and pursuing peace, I'll just, I'll just cut that off. Jesus said to radically amputate, right? That person's a stumbling block, I'm amputating them. Uh, that's not what he meant. I love... Uh, what the Apostle Paul says, he uses an amazing word picture to describe his own exertion in ministry. Galatians 4:19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So Paul uses that picture of a woman in labor to give birth to a child. And there's a reason they call it labor. Right, ladies? Right? There's a reason they call it that. So the question then is, are we willing to endure that type of anguish in our relationships? Are we willing to endure to that degree pursuing others, being concerned for others? having those difficult conversations? Are we willing to pursue people to, to that extent that it feels like childbirth? And some of us are saying, well, that's kind of hard. It is. Again, but that should drive us to our knees in prayer. And again, all of this, may our hearts be knit together in love to such an extent that our great spiritual concern for those around us leads us to be willing to endure that, that messiness of relationships. When we genuinely love and care for people and have a, a spiritual concern for them, we will be willing to endure that type of labor, that type of anguish and agony and pain to see Christ formed in them for their good and for the glory of God. And I'm, here I want to just close by saying we, we have to be willing to do this. Again, if we're going to knit our hearts together, it's kind of a two-edged sword, right? We, we get the, the unity and the love, but then when there is conflict, that makes it even more difficult. But we have to be willing to, to endure that. We have to be willing to pursue one another, to express that spiritual concern, to hear from one another. And to say, okay, we're going to pursue Christ together in unity, in love. Enduring the, the difficulty of relationships to the glory of God.